Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Work It, the podcast brought to you by Work Life and me, journalist Angelica Malin. I will be talking in this season all about women who happen to be entrepreneurs. We're going to be exploring all different elements of business, from how to start your own business, getting off the ground, funding and taking an idea into reality. In this episode, I'm talking to the incredible Pippa Murray, founder of Pippa Nut, and that's coming up in a minute. If you're interested in joining Work Life or want to know more, you can visit work.life. They specialise in private offices, hot desking and happiness. Whether you're looking for a coffee shop alternative or a private hub for you and your team they've got options for all welcome everyone to our first work at podcast the podcast about women who happen to be entrepreneurs. Um, I'm very delighted to be joined today by Pippa Murray, founder of Pippa Nut. Hi, Pippa. Hello. Thank you for joining us, our first guest Pleasure of the season. Me. So we are talking today about Pippa Nut, the Pippa Nut story, and also more generally about how people can take an idea mm-hmm. into reality. You know, we've hosted um, we've hosted 40 events the last two years, and loads of entrepreneurial ones about starting out. And I feel like one of the biggest barriers for people is just how do you begin and where do you begin? You have an idea and how do you get something mm. off the ground um, and take it from something you dream about to, mm. to a reality? So that's what I, what I want to know from you. But first off, tell us a little bit about Pippin Nut. Um, yeah, so for those of you who are listening who don't know uh, what Pippin Nut does, we're an all-natural nut butter brand. Um, we are completely natural, so we don't put things like palm oil in our products. Um, but the main thing that we focus on is making sure they're super tasty. So we have some incredibly delicious flavors like our uh, coconut almond butter or actually we just launched a chocolate orange almond which is particularly good um, I can vouch the fact it is very delicious yeah I mean honestly most of the products are highly addictive and I think for the first year I went and I used to eat my weight in that butter but slightly reined it in now um, and yeah we're stocked all over the UK so um, we're in places like Sainsbury's, um, Asda, Morrison's um, so slowly getting there and how did the idea for Pippa Nut come about? Um, I mean for me um so I guess stepping one step back, my background actually isn't in food and drink at all. So Pippin Up More came about through, A, 
just a real love of food. I think most people that launch a food brand would probably testify to that as well. Um, but also, you know, I was eating loads of nut butter, more more specifically peanut butter, because I was training for lots of different marathons. And, you know, I've always been interested in kind of like how you can fuel your, like kind of your running or your sport, whatever it is that you do through kind of natural means. Um, so I was eating loads of it, but ultimately just found myself like always getting a spoon and the jar out the cupboard and eating it with a spoonful. But kind of when I looked at the ingredients in the back of the pack, um, most of them had things like palm oils and sugars in there and I just felt that actually a really simple change by stripping them out would make it a much better product Mm. more natural Um, and what was stopping people from doing that why were they adding those things in well I mean the main reason for it is that um, like palm oil like stabilizes the product so you'll notice if you pick up a jar of our products there's a bit of oil that sits Mm. at the top that you stir back in Um, essentially palm oil stops that but you know it's not a particularly great ingredient for your health as well as the environment so um i think those those of you are aware of like palm oil it you know it's quite a big form of deforestation but also it's kind of high in saturated fat so mm. it's just not that good for the heart um so yeah so it kind of took that as a first step and then also thought actually this category or this kind of peanut butter as a whole like you know it's, it's kind of on trend like proteins in um natural fats are in um and but nobody was really doing it really well from a brand point of view I felt and I felt particularly with a younger demographic there just wasn't something that appealed to like me and my taste mm. um so I just literally just started in my kitchen so you started in your kitchen and then and then from there how did you kind of build that a bit of momentum with the brand um I mean it took ages so it took two years to just set up the brand itself um and I mean, I'd always, I always say that it's like the most painful process, um, particularly if you haven't worked in the sector that you're about to enter into because you end up meandering your way through it, not really sure, like, how do you scale up a product? What are the margins that you need? Like, all the different things that make a product and a business successful. You kind of are starting right from a blank sheet of paper. Um, but I literally just started making it in my kitchen. I've still got the blender that I bought uh, that we do all our product testing in now. Really? The same still, one? Still, That's still, so still nice. The same one. Um, and yeah, I used to like make products and I'd, I'd take them as a kind of form of market testing. I'd take them to Maltby Street Market in, in Bermondsey in London. Um, so I'd make like 200 jars at a time and then take them down at all the different flavors, mm. sell them and just see whether or not people liked it. And I think that I always recommend as like the first step because I think you need to get the idea out of your head and mm. like make it something, particularly a product. You need to somehow like, make it real um and I always kind of say that it's a bit like doing a market store is a bit like doing your minimal viable product if you're a tech company it's about just uh trying it testing it out iterating changing tweaking and then and then you scale it up yeah and I did that through so getting the kind of initial product right yeah and I think don't rush that phase I think you can be so keen to kind of look at all the brands that you see four years in front of you um looking all slick and perfect um, but actually, it's just a really good way of, like, testing the water before you spend so much money on, like, branding and factory, you know, manufacturing runs and mm. all that stuff. It it does just help you get a feel for whether or not people like your product. Did you have that moment at the time when you were doing it when you were like, what am I doing? Yeah, just carting, like, 200 jars of nut butter yeah, to a street right. market and it's raining and you're like, what am I doing? Uh, yeah, and, I, and that's why I say it's, like, one of the hardest phases because it so doesn't, like... It reflect the kind of business that you want like I always wanted to kind of a national supermarket brand I never wanted to be standing at market it's not that there's anything wrong with that that's just mm. not the brand I wanted you had bigger ambitions yeah. for it 
But the funny thing is, I, I remember, so I'd work part-time at the Science Museum where I was working at the time, um, and then on my days off, I'd go and buy, like, loads of really bulk ingredients, take it to this factory, this kind of, like, kitchen in North London where I'd, like, blend it all up using these, like, blenders that would get really hot and burn out and I'd have to put them in the, like, big walk-in freezers to cool them down so I could carry on making it and then I'd get in my zip van and drive all the way down South London. I mean, it was a complete logistical nightmare um, and it was actually, like, really physically exhausting. I can imagine carrying um, all these jars around. But, yeah, I think, I, I genuinely think my mum thought I was a crazy woman. Like, she'd see me, like, at weekends being like, what are you doing? <laughs> but then it sounds like it was so important for the brand to, like, have that market research and get a feel for the yeah, product. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, the next phase is, you know, you've got to, you can do one of two things for a food product. You either find a factory and they make it for you to your recipe or you build your own production site. But whatever the case, understanding like on a small scale how your product is made and getting really familiar with the ingredients um, really helps the next phase and it really makes you sound credible and, and you know, it gives reassurance to kind of future partners like factories or even mm. investors that actually um, you put your money where your mouth is and you've given it a go and you've tried and tested it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so yeah, it's not like you want to be hands off from the whole process. You yeah. need to know it from yeah, the start. Exactly. It's so funny that it's such a simple thing that like palm oil essentially you just have to stir it. Yeah. And that's why it was in so many of those products. So it's just yeah. a little bit of a, a, a consumer habit change. Yeah, that totally. Just learn to stir it. Yeah, and I think like I always, I really think like you don't necessarily need to create like the next revolutionary new, um, completely new category. Like you can just tweak something that's in the market or yeah. strip an ingredient out or make something just a bit better. And, and also create a brand that really is kind of fits into that lifestyle kind of um, brand world. Um, and, and, and really that can be all, all it takes. Mm-hmm. Um, you could target a, just a slightly different demographic from what already is existing on the market. So, yeah, I, th- I think it's all about kind of tweaking things as a necessarily... Like, it's quite reassuring it. to hear because I think a lot of what puts people off is the fear of how many competitors there are and yeah. how there's already so many amazing brands on the shelf or whatever. Mm. There's lots of other websites and you think, yeah. well, they've done it, so why should I? And actually, you don't need to reinvent the wheel. You can just tweak and make something better. Yeah, and and particularly, like, I mean, one of the things with Nutbutter is that, yeah, there are already people doing it. I'm definitely not the first person to think of it. Um but it was a really boring place in the supermarket. Um, you know, when he looked, when I looked at the shelves, like there was just nothing exciting going on there. Whereas, and there is something I think about the traction that we've had, which is, you know, the amount of competitors on the shelf has, has, is less than say what you'd find in, you know, a drinks cabinet mm. where you've got like a million and one different options. Yeah. You know, there really aren't that many. So actually that really helps in terms of, getting a bit further along the line without feeling like you're having to fight your way through all the different competitors on the shelves. So. Yeah. And how did you work the funding side of it? So getting the business off the ground financially, yeah. how did that work for Pippa Nut? Um, so yeah, funding just seems like a never ending like game um, for for Pippa Nut. Um, and, but the first funding round is difficult. So again, not having any experience in like food and drink or business um, just naturally meant that you end up um, kind of, you really have to prove yourself in those like business first kind of investor meetings. And I remember spending the f- about five months trying to pitch to different investors, um, all with di- different shapes and sizes. Um, and I just got just time after time, like no's. Um, I think people didn't necessarily feel that I had enough experience or, you know, didn't know whether or not the category was, or the opportunity was big enough and all these different things. Um, so I ended up going to crowdfunding. Um, I mean, it was kind of a last resort, mm. if I'm honest. 
Um, Do you think that the the investors you went to just didn't really get the product at the time? Yeah, and I think people can be really risk averse when they kind of want a, a safe bet, and mm. perhaps they just saw me as a bit of a, a live wire and wasn't really <laughs> sure whether or not you know I was actually up for the challenge. Yeah. Or... I don't think VCs are your like traditional kind of chocolate almond butter eaters, no. are they? <laughs> I mean, they look a bit blank when they're like, "Oh, right, okay, what is this thing?" Um, so yeah, so I, I went to crowdfunding and essentially just almost did like a friends and family round on that. Um, so pulled loads of different, you know, of, of my own like kind of contacts. And then a few people who I'd met along the way who said, okay, I'll give you five or 10 grand um, and raised um, just over 100K on the site. And that was basically the, f- the first amount of funding that I needed to kind of mm. get everything into production and, and flowing off the production line. So of that 100K that you ra- raised on crowdfunding, how much of that was secured pre-launch, like before you put the... the- Kickstarter live. Yeah, so I so I put around I think about seventy percent of it was really confirmed. wow. Okay, but there's still that moment when you press live on like the um, funding platform and you think I don't actually know if any of these people. <laughs> yeah, I said like, they would. But... Yeah, and there's a lot of I think. I mean, some people never put the money in that I'd, I thought would. Um, but to be then, honest, even thirty percent is still pretty yeah. amazing. Thirty percent that you didn't know was going to come through the door that exactly. wants to invest in you and the product. Yeah, and that's the stat that uh, most platforms say is like get thirty percent of it all confirmed, and then the crowd takes over and you'll get momentum through it. But I think you know back then it was like almost five years ago now, and I think the platforms have evolved, and mm. um, I still think they're really great places for first funding rounds for particularly um, like products. Mm. Um, but I think definitely it's up to Santi. I, I do wonder whether or not we'd have the same, we would have had the same success. Yeah. Um, was that equity funding? Yes, it was. So we used Crowdcube. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it gave away a fairly significant proportion of the brand at that stage. Um, Is but it that was something with, with hindsight now, kind of five years on, that you regret with the equity? Um, I wouldn't say necessarily regret because I, um, I think it's just I've got to where I am and I'm, I'm pretty happy with it. But. I do think there are different things you can pull to probably stretch it a bit further mm. and probably increase your um, valuation. So, for instance, you know, there are loads of like different startup loans now where you can actually get like £25,000 per founder, um, which I think is pretty amazing, like pretty like good from in terms of startup cap- capital. You could get, you know, out the door and, and some um, to prove the product a bit more. So mm. I did the funding round before I'd launched properly. Um, and it just means that you're you're selling more than you probably would if you had at least six months because your valuation isn't yeah isn't as high yeah so I think I probably would have tried to like stretch it a bit harder but you know what I think having a bit more money and having a bit more kind of um, runway with things so we had a you know didn't need to do another funding round for another year and a bit after that first one just meant that I could focus on doing the business so I think there are always like plus and minuses to things and you will always need more more money but it's just how much you want to how quickly you want to grow and all those different things do you have any tips for successful crowdfunding campaigns yeah I think the main thing is um don't overcomplicate your business plan if you're particularly if you're pre-revenue so if you haven't got any um sales yet You've got a really simple business plan. Just make it, you know, 10 pages in a nice deck uh, so people can flick through it. Um, a convincing video. And I think it's really important that founders are, like, actually in front of the camera. I've, I've seen ones where they're, like, animations or people don't necessarily, like, show their faces. And I think people really want to see, like, the founder mm-hmm. talking to camera. Um, and then I'd say, yeah, your your point to... Um, make sure you've got some of the funding lined up and make sure you don't have a ridiculous valuation. Like, be realistic, do your research, test the water a little bit with, uh, you know, people that you've already spoken to as to whether or not 
they think what you're valuing the business at at that stage is is right because if it's too if it's if the valuation is too high you'll just never get off the starting block yeah and then that like loss of momentum at the very beginning will really affect just you know how successful you'll be Mm. um so yeah so um beyond that can you tell us a little bit about um escape the city and your experience with working out of their shed yes so (laughs) Um, this seems to be like a story that I'm trying to bury in every so often, like, really. <laughs> it will always be, especially with me, I'll always bring up every <laughs> panel know, talk we do on, like, Pip, tell the escape. It's like a crazy woman, but essentially, so I, I basically, um, have quite a, quite a tight connection with Escape City. They, when I was starting out with the back brand, um, launched a competition, um, it was like a PR thing for them, but it was like, uh, called Escape to the Shed, and essentially, it was um, an opportunity for one startup to live rent free and desk and, and and give them desk space in their office um, for three months. And the catch being that it was like living in their garden shed. And I remember like one of my was my, you literally sleeping in it? So literally slept in it. And <laughs> my mentor sent me the link, being like, "Why don't you apply? Like you're really broke and you definitely need a bit of a leg up." And I was like, "Oh yeah, it would really allow me to like quit my job." So I entered off a complete whim, ended up winning it a month later. Um, and I really distinctly remember like when I got the phone call from the founder, Dom, calling me up and I was at my job at the time. I stepped outside the, outside the office and he was like, Pip, you've won, you've won the competition. And there was a moment of like, Jesus, I'm going to have to like actually, actually follow through it. this. Yeah. So yeah, I literally spent three months living in their back garden. I was like a feral cat and, <laughs> um, and essentially just used it to like, I, I basically spent the summer planning my crowdfunding campaign um, and finishing off the product development with the factory. And, and it essentially gave me a three months runway where I just mm-hmm. had no overheads. And I think there's a real like point of like, everyone always asks like, when do you quit your job? And it does feel like a real like mem- momentous time. And I don't know how you felt about it when you, you did it. Yeah. Well, my, I always said mine was a lot easier because I never had a job, which I do oh, think yeah, makes yeah, life a lot easier. So I started about time straight out of university. Oh, that's the best way. It is good because you don't have that fear because I've, I don't know what a job feels yeah, like. And like um, that feeling of like security you get from like a regular. Never had any security. Yeah. So for me, all I know, it, all I know is complete ups and downs, yeah. total highs and those financial yeah. instability and then moments of like pure joy and like that is my life it's, that's only been my life but I do think that that's like how much your advantage because yeah. you don't have that um, safety yeah. net yeah and that's the thing like you kind of I think when you're in that kind of like cycle of always getting paid on a monthly basis mm. like you can feel like really terrifying pulling yourself out so for me it was like salaries are an addiction yeah you know? they really are and I think that's one of the reasons why so many people don't start is because they're like well how am I going to live in London and, and I really feel for people because it's not easy mm. so basically this competition was my solution to how am I going to live in London because I think everyone has like kind of things that they won't give up for their business so for me I was like I just not that I, I don't like my parents, I really do. I just couldn't, the, the thought of like living at home for yeah, a period of time to save money. Mm-hmm. I just like, oh, I feel like I'm sacrificing too much or just something, a big part of myself for that. So this was just a ra- really just random. Yeah. And then, and then crowdfunding ra- raised the money at the end of the three months. And then that meant I never had to go back. Did you ever wish that you had a co-founder with Pip and not? Yeah. And actually, I normally say this is probably one of my biggest regrets. Um, and I try not to have regrets through it, as I said. But, um, yeah, I think it's, like, such a blessing to have one. And, you know, it is really isolating sometimes not having mm-hmm. someone to, like, bounce ideas off or pick you up when you're down and vice versa. Um, and I think it doesn't get... It's fine now, I think, now that I've got a team and I've got, like, you know, people I really can rely on um, who actually I can lean on a bit more than I would normally, um, you know, just, like, 
I can lean on because I can actually understand the context of the business and what's going on. Um, but I just think it really helps having two or three people like who are so invested and work really, really fucking hard all the time mm. um, to actually go and like you know club together and do it. But that's not to say you can't. Mm. I, I definitely think you can. Obviously, we I do, and I wouldn't have a, fa- a co-founder now because it's too far down the line. But it, I think, it does make your life easier. Um, yeah, you can find someone that shares your vision and your passion. Yeah, and it, I think it's just like I have to get asked, can you?" Um, you know, like, what's your vision or what's the what's the strategy for this? And I'm like, I mean, I do know, but I kind of want to like ask someone else, like, is this a ridiculous idea yeah. or is this, this sound stupid? I know um, exactly how you feel. I did it. I did a keynote talk last week, and there was a Q and A at the end. It was like a hundred people, maybe, and some guy stood up and asked me, "What's your five year plan?" And in front yeah. of a hundred people, and I just suddenly you just panic and yeah. you think, yeah, if you'd run it past someone else to make sure this was a good five year plan. And I was like, global world domination. <laughs> I just didn't know what to say. I was like, we're gonna go global. I don't even know what I mean. Um, but I, I know exactly what you mean in terms of like marketing and building a brand mm. um i feel like pip has such a strong brand identity i mm. mean you talked earlier about the visuals on the shelf mm. and that's definitely one of the things that stands out for me but also the, the tone of tone of voice mm. and how you speak on social media how um what did that process look like of deciding what does the brand look and sound like yeah i mean i think um so i think i think it's so fundamental like I, in terms of like getting that brand look and feel right from day one um I know a lot of people have different views on it but my view is like invest particularly if you're again a product-based business where you are really building everything on like a physical product it's just so important that it really lands well and stands out and um you know we use our products and essentially the branding that wraps around it as a way of like almost like advertising on the shelf because really uh, we can't afford to do any other Mm. advertising at the moment um, and we worked with just an amazing creative agency who we still work with today. And I would say that it's definitely an evolving thing. Um, you know, almost if you scroll right down to the bottom of our Instagram feed from day one, you'd see like how sort of, I don't, I guess inconsistent it was yeah. and that like, you can tell like you didn't it was like, to a filter. No, the filter was switching all over the place. <laughs> and like, I do some weird quotes every so often. And I, you know, it's the stuff that you kind of cringe at now. Um, so I would say like brand tone of voice evolves and so does the look and feel in terms of like how you build all the assets outside of um you know the brand and the the identity itself but make sure at least the core bit of it which is your logo and you know the assets that surround it are are really strong and identifiable and I think one of our biggest strengths is that our particularly our, our logo our identity is just so um has so much personality in it um and and it's so distinctive that it means that we can it really like makes it much more ownable um and much more kind of um easy to be able to like build all the different assets so for us when we're looking at how do we build a big trade stand for when we do consumer events like mm-hmm. it, it, when you've got something that's really strong it instantly makes everything else look much better yeah so, you've got more to build yeah, on yeah just spend the time doing it and work with an agency that you really trust um and and do your do some reference checks on the agency make sure that other clients have been happy with their work um and then just ultimately be really honest and true and like really like listen to your gut when it comes to it yeah because you know you'll um not really got much else to work on you can't do loads of consumer testing and like sense checking whether this is right you're you're gonna just have to say like to yourself like does this feel right and Mm. do I like the direction it's going it's interesting because from a lot of the talks that I've done so many people have said to me 
don't spend too much on your first brand because you're always going to yeah. hate your first brand. And I, I, I'm kind of with you. I think it's really important to invest in that branding at the start. And mm. I think a lot of the time when people say yeah. that, it's because they didn't give the agency a clear enough brief because yeah. they didn't really know what they wanted. Yeah, so they're like, oh, we weren't happy with our first branding. I'm like, well, how did you brief them? And they're like, well, we just said like fun, you know, and they yeah. don't make it clear. Yeah. So you have to know what you want when you go in there. Yeah, like, the same totally. with websites. You have to say, this is what we want. Yeah. And yeah, definitely websites. I mean, our website at the moment is pretty horrific when you navigate it and it's it's because you you need to really un- exactly that you need to understand exactly what you want mm. um what I would say though with working with agencies is that sometimes you know you do actually have to let them have a bit of freedom as well so a clear brief is good but not so prescriptive that you're solving whatever problem is that you're trying to solve and what we often do when we brief our agencies is about you know asking them questions or things that we're trying to solve through our brand so it's not so much like we want a logo that is um, brown and has a animal on it and it has to have the name Pip in it and entwined, you know, to so try and leave them to do their creative job because mm. you are, that's why you're paying them astronomical amounts of money. Yeah. 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 And in terms of the money and, and the agency stuff, I, is there anything that you have spent money on with Pip and Nut that you kind of regret and anything similarly that you think is a really good investment? I'm thinking like specifically with PR mm. and like when you launch, I know that's like a big thing, like new companies, like we need a PR agency and we need to like someone to publicize who we are and what we're about or social media like do you outsource yeah yeah I mean I think um yeah I mean we have spent money all the time that like could have been spent better elsewhere Mm. um when it comes to I guess the the basics like I mean I'm I believe that a good PR agency are really worth their weight in gold um however I do find that like we've always worked with quite small PR agencies like our, the guys that we work with at the moment literally are two women um who work independently who used to work at big agencies so but have just got some great contacts um and I find that's been always quite effective because it tends to be slightly more cost effective and also you get to actually work with like what would be a senior account manager versus a lot of the time in bigger PR agencies mm. you get handed down to juniors and I also think you need to look at whether or not your brand really is resonating and like f- for some reason um people not like press just press just love it um I know that other people find it much harder to get traction with their products and I think that's just really brand specific and product yeah. specific and tend to find that I feel like press like just really tasty stuff um <laughs> yeah I mean we're human so, right so yeah exactly so if it all feels like a bit more of a present and a bit of a treat then they're probably going to more likely get excited by it because people do get bombarded and mm. if you are working with um, a PR agency just make sure to pay attention to like the little details like if you're sending products in I mean you get must get Inundated. Yeah, it's not safe. Our office is not a safe space. Oh my god! Like you must be like. I've got a hundred in innocent nut milks today. A hundred. Oh I was walking up and down that? the stairs for an hour. Bath in it. On his own bath in hazelnut milk. Oh, lovely! You say like silly smooth. <laughs> so nutty and delicious. <laughs> um, uh, bubble bath for that. Yeah, I mean, will, it, like, will it bubble? Would it burn? <laughs> will it bubble? I don't know. Try, I'll try it. It. <laughs> I'll report back. Um, to make it feel like a treat. Yeah, like make it really feel like special because, like, ultimately, yeah, you know, you get so many probably brown boxes that look really crap and it just lands really mm. well badly um Get, and then, to, to anyone listening can i just say stop sending like um potted plants it never oh, lands no. well because they're all the soil is always everywhere yeah. they think it's a nice idea to send a plant <laughs> in an, like, an invite and a plant yeah. and then it's just soil all over the office but that's the thing like i think it's like really think about how it's going to get executed like i know people that have sent like fresh products and then the pr the like press person is like on holiday for a week and then they come back to like a rotten <laughs> thing on their desk which is just like really, really crap nice, yeah um and then t- social media i think that's for me i think is like key to keep it in house like it's not actually that hard to outsource it it's not 
t- that time consuming. Sorry, it's not that hard to do it yourself. It, you know, it's not hugely time consuming at first, or at least you can try and make it as, as light touch as possible. Um, but I just think it's really important to be able to be reactive on your social and talk honestly and mm. build your own tone of voice. Um, and, and work out what stories you want to tell because I just find it's, you always just get slightly diluted and sort of, I don't know. I just think people, when you work with an agency on that, they either go really wacky or mm. really safe. And I, I just think it's just quite hard to find something. Nobody's really going to speak your brand like you do. Yeah, and it has to really come from from you, I think, initially. Um, but then stuff we've spent money on is like, you know, we've done stuff like either before we've got like national distribution. So like we went and did like a big event, festival event. Um, at, you know, we went to festival. And it was in our first year, we hadn't even got like a supermarket listing, so nobody could buy us anywhere. Yeah, we thought it was an amazing idea to go and spend like a week <laughs> basically partying at festival and feeding everyone toast with nut butter on during the day. And we've discovered that, A, particularly that festival, nobody wanted anything healthy. It was just like all about the meat mm. and burgers. Uh, and, and B, like, you know, nobody could find us, even if they did really want to buy it after the festival. So <laughs> I always just say, like, work, work from your shelf and then and this is so boring but like work if your product's on a shelf um activate there first and then slowly ripple out don't spend too much money on like stuff that isn't going to direct people to store yeah it sounds really boring and tedious and i know you have to build the brand as well but i think no, but it's important to remember like is this marketing activity actually going to sell more yeah. jars sometimes it's just as basic as that we're similar it's like are we going to get more website traffic like yeah is this going to actually serve our business yeah yeah, yeah. and because otherwise you can just waste your money waste so much time like trying to do loads of different other things and actually just try and be really effective at a few things at least at first at least mm. um just because we didn't cover it before, for anyone that is thinking about doing a food brand, how did you um, convince manufacturers to take on your product and make it? Yeah, I mean, it is so hard. Um, I, I think the first one is harder in terms of like just finding a factory. And I mean, if I do it now, the way I go about doing it is basically I go and ask as many people as I possibly can in the industry. So reach into your network, ask for referrals and then referrals from the referrals and keep building it out like that. Go to trade events, um, go and speak to. So we make obviously um, almond butter. So we might go to some almond suppliers and ask them, do they supply anyone? And you just basically try and build like just it's like a rabbit warren and you'll just go down all these different avenues and eventually you'll find something that works but when you do actually get in front of a factory door and like try and get inside and speak to the like mds or whatever firstly do try and speak to the people at the top like because they're going to be the ones that signing off and and often i tend to find like most of the time they don't really want to deal with you an account manager that's not going to really get much um you know revenue from you at first like won't really be asked to like you know really make an effort and get this product running in their factory so speak to like the mds and really just sell the dream and just think big and make sure you've got a really clear like forecast as to what you're really going to deliver for them because i mean it is like a financial partnership it's a numbers game yeah it's a numbers game but then don't forget like a lot of these guys are working with like the big tesco's and sainsbury's and you know probably quite boring products and i think don't forget that you can sell the fact that this is going to be a really fun journey and like actually something to get their team excited by and and that you're going to be an easy person to work with um so try and just build some sort of rapport um, and don't be too demanding because ultimately most of the time they're doing you a favor by like Mm. making it for you which is the really weird thing about it which is like you feel like you're paying the money but actually they are doing you a bit of a favor because they probably won't make money on. on yeah but yeah, it's a, it's a weird world. Like I remember the first factory meeting that I went to 
And so I was 24 at the time. I was still working at my job. Um, and I went to this like manufacturer based in like the Midlands and it's just such a foreign environment. Mm. You like put on your hairnet and your lab coat and you wander in and they just spout all this lingo at you that you have absolutely no idea what it means. And you look like you're about five years old. So they probably don't believe that you're like actually capable of doing it. And it's, it is really male dominated. So you sit there and it's, so it can be really intimidating because yeah. like, you're just in an environment, unless you work in it, that you just don't really know what you should be saying. Yeah. So you kind of do need to go through a few dud meetings <laughs> and like embarrass yourself a bit. Um, and then you'll eventually like know your, your way around sort of thing. Yeah. Um, I'm glad that you mentioned that about being a, a woman in business because obviously the, uh, this whole series is mm. about female entrepreneurs. And I feel like every kind of woman in business panel talk that happens, you're wheeled out, <laughs> piffing up, bit worrying, female founder. <laughs> There's not which that is, many, I don't think. Well, yeah, no, I think. There's more and more. There are more and more, but, um, there, it's also, there are certain industries that are, more dominated by female entrepreneurs and then we recently tried to do a tech panel and it's like god it was hard to program because actually there's just not that many women who are they might work at tech businesses Mm. but there's not many that have started their own tech business and there's certain industries that still need to catch up Um, but yeah so so being a a woman in business um, what has your experience been like as a female founder is it something that you feel on the daily or is it do we kind of um, overstate when we talk about female entrepreneurs or are you just an entrepreneur yeah I mean I try not distinguish too much between it because I find that you almost like self-perpetuate the issue um but yeah I do think it is I do think it can be an issue sometimes Mm. so for instance I think some of the thing that like I compare and despair a bit sometimes so I might compare myself to I don't know some of my male other founders of other food startups and I think sometimes I, I find like oh, am I not as confident or maybe I'm not doing this quite as well as they might do or are they finding it easier because it's easier for them to get investment because they're male and all these different things might roll through my head. And, and I think part of it comes down to like actually how much you're just going to ignore the fact that this is an issue. Because um, I think sometimes in some scenarios, like, you know, a male-dominated environment, that is often investment mm. world and or factories are quite male-dominated. But if you just don't make it an issue and ultimately prove yourself through your brand, um, people should take you seriously. So I've never actively been like, I'd say, sidelined as a result of it. But I do think that it is harder in certain arenas, particularly in the investment world. I think yeah. men find it easier to raise money because it's, you know, often. Sure. And there's loads of stats that support that, yeah. that women find it a lot harder to get investment mm. and to be taken seriously. And I think also like when it comes to things like mentors, like, um, you know, I really want, to, you know, my main mentor is, is, is a guy and he's brilliant and I absolutely love working with him. Um, but also sometimes I do want to get experience from, you know, a female because it is a different kind of way of doing business, I tend to think. Mm. Um, and I just think that's, that in itself is often quite difficult. I, I find it really hard to find other like peers or, and or people kind of a, a few steps in front of me to kind of help, help and ask for advice because there again are just less women, I think, in those top runs so sure. I think it is quite and there's less sometimes. spaces to find them I know my boyfriend finds lots of kind of advice in, in mm. different spaces like whether it's on his football team or like yeah, totally. some club that his dad's a part of yeah. and I think there's less spaces for women to network yeah yeah I definitely find that as well but I mean I don't tend to find it an issue like it hasn't held me back so much but I know it's there I'm not ignorant to it I think as well yeah um just to just uh on a kind of ending note, if there's any advice that you could share for mm. first-time entrepreneurs who are looking perhaps to launch their own business and are a bit nervous, um, is there any advice you can share from the last few years in your experience? Yeah, I mean, I think 
the thing that I normally well my my number one piece of advice is just make sure you really focus on making sure your product is right you can get really kind of wrapped up in all the other fluffy bits around the outside and often those are the most exciting things like the branding or the marketing but particularly with a food product it's just really make sure it tastes good and don't ignore the fact that like it's got to taste really nice like people buy with their eyes and also their mouth obviously they'll rebuy if they like the taste of it so I think some people take not enough attention on that and and then we've fallen foul of sometimes launching something that actually should have been like given an extra couple of months to get to a better point Mm. um so take the time don't rush the process because if you get it right uh when you launch it you'll not have to worry about it Mm. um and I think that also just comes down to just make sure you execute things really well try and do less but better um and again that's a really hard thing to say and again I don't always listen to my own advice (laughs) like we try and do a million and one things um and finally just think big like don't necessarily put um get nervous about saying like that you want to be a I don't know 50 million pound business like if you think that you can and that your product is scalable then there's no reason why you can't do that Mm. I think some people have a bit of fear and I think this is a bit more of a female thing like fear of like you know what if I can't or doubting yourself but actually if you kind of think big it kind of like allows you to hopefully you might meet you might only get halfway but you might have got like a bigger part of like you might have got further essentially yeah you just think think big about what you're trying to do so and giving yourself the confidence to go out and do that yeah just say the numbers and like eventually you'll start believing it even (laughs) if you feel a bit uncertain about it um so yeah um but I I mean ultimately just start doing it like get out there um get a blender (laughs) get any kitchen get that blender out fantastic thank you so much Pip you've been the most dreamy first guest of the season and we are so excited to watch Pip not go from strength to strength and I personally will be eating (laughs) some chocolate orange almond butter tonight thank you Pip cheers no worries life is full of what ifs some awesome like what if AI could fold your laundry and some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate and review. There'll be a new episode out every Monday for the next eight weeks. And if you're interested about joining Work Life, you can visit them at work.life.
This has been a Candy Store production for Work.Live, hosted by Angelica Malin and produced by Van Connor. T-shirt weather by Poddington Bear appears under Creative Commons 3.0 with podcast recording facilities in partnership with Work.Life. Go online to Work.Life for more information and you can find us at candystoreproductions.co.uk. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.